church. Our scripture this morning comes from the 116th chapter of Psalms, verses number 12 through 19. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call to the Lord the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. And remember, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. I want to read that line again. Precious is the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts and the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to welcome everyone who is streaming with us right now. We're grateful that you're a part of our assembly, even though you may not be here physically. We know that you're here in heart, and we're grateful that you're here. Uh, reminder, too, that inside of your announcement sheet, you will find an outline. Uh, on one side of it, it has the order of worship. On the other side, it has an area where you can fill in some blanks and uh, take some notes, uh, some things that might uh, uh, spur some, some further study this next week, uh, some things like that might be said or some questions that you might uh, want to follow up on, uh, I would encourage you to get out that sermon note right now and uh, let's take some notes together as we study this text um, out of Psalm 116. Uh, reminder, too, that uh, um, we made an announcement several weeks ago about the need a young man had about uh, a liver donor. And uh, I want to remind you that we need to still keep praying about that even though a donor has surfaced and has been identified and they're going through uh, some of the testing that needs to be done right now to make sure that, that everything and donating a part of your liver, all of that lines up in the right way. And uh, we want to continue praying about that and praying for upcoming surgery and for the procedures and all of that. And uh, although you don't know the name of this, uh, this person, that uh, uh, the best thing right now is for it to be an anonymity. Uh, we ask you to continue praying for this process, and uh, we're going to continue that prayer right now, not only for uh, this process, but also for our text and our sermon this morning. Let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father, we bring in so many forms death into creation, you, however, continue to bring life. And it is, <coughs> it is this fact that gives courage to our heart and brings gladness to us. We settle in on the promise of Christ that nothing can snatch us from your hand, that we are safe within your grasp and within your love. We pray always to take our stand on these promises with ever-increasing faith to your glory and to our blessing and the blessing of people around us. We also remember this upcoming, Father, and speak uh, 
about this procedure into your ear in the name of Jesus, Father. Asking you to bless this young person who is in need of a liver transplant. And for the one who is donating, we pray for success and for safety and for healing and for strength. And we pray that you will make your presence known to them. And this, Father, is what we ask with all of our heart in full faith that you can do it. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all the church said, you know the name Woody Allen says clever things from time to time. A lot of it nonsense, but every once in a while he says something that just kind of is like a, a dart in the middle of a target in terms of its truthfulness. And Woody Allen once said that I am not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> On the flip side of that, I, I heard recently a story. A young minister just right out of school was taking... Uh, first couple of weeks in his new position with the church, received a phone call to go up to a hospital to visit with a woman who was very close to death. And he went in and, and started doing all of the things that he'd been taught to do in, in college when someone was close to death to give them comfort. And she said, um, why don't we hold off on that just for a minute? I have some things I need to tell you. And because she was the only one left in her family, there was no one else she started to tell this young minister all of the things that she needed to have done after she passed. She talked about the red dress that, uh, that she wanted to be buried in. She talked about where the wills and safe deposit boxes were located and these kinds of things. And the, the minister was a young man, his first time in this kind of a situation. And he asked um, when there was a, a break in the conversation, how can you be so nonchalant about your death. And she said, when I was a little girl and my grandmother, whom I love very much, was about to pass, the family was called to the house where she had been lying in bed uh, for about two weeks without opening her eyes. The doctor had said that the end was near. We called the minister. The family was being called in. And we went into the room where grandmother was laying in bed. And the minister asked for us to, to touch grandmother someplace while he said a prayer and she said I because I was so young I was down towards the foot of the bed and I just put my hand on my grandmother's foot and the minister said a prayer very beautiful prayer and when he was done my grandmother for the first time in two weeks opened her eyes and she sort of sat up and she looked me in the eye and she said Ruth it's so beautiful it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And then she laid down, she closed her eyes, and she passed from this life to the next. And this woman laying in this hospital bed said, from that day forward, I have not feared what was on the other side. In nearly four decades of ministry, I have been present in a lot of rooms where people have taken their last breath in this life prospect of death always has a way of bringing out what our core beliefs are, what we believe to be absolutely true, and what we stake our claim of faith on. I have been in those rooms where there has been an unnerving dread and fear. And I have been in those rooms and have witnessed 
a peaceful and confident saint in the presence of God. Here's something up on the screen that I believe with with all of my heart. When you know the truth about what happens to you after you die and you believe it, and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the age to come, that truth blesses you for all of life. I want to say that again. When you know the truth about what happens to you after you die and you believe it, it's not just a truth like 2 plus 2 equals 4 kind of truth, but it's a confessional truth. It's a rock type of truth in your life. And you believe it and you're satisfied with all that God will be for you in the age to come. That truth will bless you for all of life. Uh, My father passed away in 2013. Not long before he died, he and I were alone, and I had a conversation, a frank conversation, about what I believed happened when a disciple of Jesus passes from this life to the next. Uh, The question of, of what happens when you die is one that I'm asked on a regular basis. And, and what I want to do this morning is to give you three things that I told my dad and, and, and others as well, plus a fourth thing that I wish I would have mentioned in that moment. And the four things are these, the presence of the angels, the presence of God, the presence of beauty, and the presence of surprise. And then close with some practicalities. Now, just a disclaimer before we jump into this, there is no way in a one-off sermon that you're going to be able to answer all of the questions or go over everything. Uh, maybe sometime in 2019 we can address this more in detail. But this is just some preliminary thoughts and answer to the question, what happens when you die? Let's begin with the first one, the presence of angels. God has innumerable servants called angels, his ministers, his messengers. And they take different forms of appearance. The cherubim have four faces and four wings in the book of Ezekiel. There are other angels that are called seraphim. They have six wings, as we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Sometimes, like in the book of Genesis, they show up looking like men. But one of the things that the Bible tells us about angels is that they have a lot of duties. But one in particular is ministering to the disciples of Jesus in this life. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 The Hebrew writer is saying, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now stepping just to the side for a second. One of the big questions people have about death is this. Where do people go when they die? Biblically speaking, after death, people go uh, to paradise Or they would go to a place called Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna, not a very positive place. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Mark chapter 9 describes it as a place that's the opposite of paradise. Paradise, on the other hand, is a place of bliss. I mean, hence the name paradise. It is a place of bliss for those who have been found righteous. Another term that we find in the New Testament for paradise, uh, in particular Luke chapter 16 in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is this this terminology, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is contrasted with the place of torment in that story. Now, in this story, and Jesus never calls it a parable. 
in this story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's, it's interesting because in it, both of the main characters die the same time. And in Luke 16, verse 22, the time came, Jesus in telling this story, came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In this story, in Luke 16, the, the angels act as escorts for Lazarus, the poor man in the story, and they take him to this place called Abraham's bosom. And over in Mark chapter 13, when Jesus explains to his disciples the meaning of the parable of the weeds, he identifies the angels as the harvesters, the ones who bring in the harvest. Many times at the end of life, this life, many of you have been there and, and have experienced this as well, people will mention seeing angels. A lot of times, uh, it, and there's, I don't think there's anything to this, but they always seem to be in the upper left-hand corner. Many times at the end of this life, people mention seeing angels, and that would make sense in light of what Scripture teaches. That the angels escort the righteous to God. And one of the things that I said to my father, and I've said to others, even to some more recently, I said, the angels will make sure that you get to God. Don't worry. Don't worry. The angels will get you to God, which now brings us to the presence of God. Prior to the ascension of Jesus, it appears, it appears in Scripture that paradise, where the righteous go to death, and the heaven of God were not the same. Jesus, in John chapter 20, after his resurrection, tells Mary not to cling to him because, well, he says to her, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the Father. What Jesus is saying is that he has not gone to the heaven of God. At the same time, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 reminds us that the, bloods of, the blood of bulls and goats cannot and do not take away sin. Uh, specifically, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Prior to the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, the faithful did not go into the presence of God because they could not. Their sins had not been atoned for by Jesus. It doesn't mean that they've gone to a place of torment. They have gone to a paradise. But not it appears into the presence of God because their sins had not been atoned for by Jesus. Thus we read in Hebrews chapter 9, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. We drop down to verse 26. He appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then from that point on, it appears that paradise and heaven are together. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the text where Paul is, 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 is talking about a, 
uh, he's talking about himself, but he's talking about himself in, in a different person. In a, in a different, uh, he's talking about himself in third person. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. Goes up to heaven, paradise, and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. When Paul thought his death was imminent, he wrote to the church in Philippi, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. When Paul thought that his death was imminent, he thought that he was going into the presence of Christ. Disciples of Jesus go into the presence of God at death. The angels make sure that we get there, but we find ourselves in the presence of God. And I tell people, at some point, you're going to find yourself face to face with God. And it will be an indescribable moment that is beyond our imagination, which brings us to the presence of beauty. The third thing I told my father was that he could anticipate beauty like he and I could not imagine in this life. The description of the place of God in Revelation is indescribably beautiful, is it not? And golden streets and sapphires and, 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 and gems. And, 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 and the, John is trying to describe the place of God as, as, as eye-poppingly beautiful as he can in that moment in his, his context. It's not only beautiful, but it's a place of feasts. The, a place of feasts. I mean, we make the joke. I mean, you can go to heaven and eat all the bluebell ice cream you want and never gain weight. That seems to be true. The finest of wines. It's a place of relationship with, with, with people that you love. And not only is it beautiful, but there's nothing there that scars it. There's no trace of, of death. Or any of the things that lead to death or cause death, like, like disease or war or greed. We have such horrible things in this, this life. I think about those young kids in sex trafficking, human slavery. Man, none of that in heaven. None of that. The presence of God is filled with beauty beyond our imagination. I've seen skies in our great state so blue that it makes your eyes water. A heaven is a place that causes all of that to be forgettable. Final thing, and the thing that I wish I would have said, is it's a place, it's a, the presence of surprise. Uh, Dallas Willard, back in 2013, who died the same year that my father died, he mused out loud one day, not long after discovering that he had terminal cancer, he mused out loud, wondered out loud, how long it would be before he realized that he had died. He was basing that, scripture, uh, he was basing that question on John chapter 8, Verse 52, where 
those religious leaders are accusing Jesus of teaching, and he doesn't correct them. He says, you say, if anybody obeys your word, they will not taste death. When you taste something, you are bringing in its core into you. When, when you taste pecan pie or uh, a McDonald's sandwich, you're bringing that taste into you. You're experiencing it. Jesus was teaching, and they jumped him for it. That if you obey his word, you will not taste death. And Dallas thought that one moment he would be here, and in the next, wide awake, in the presence of God. Eyes wide open. Taking in all of the beauty, all of the love, all of the glory. The full beauty of God in that moment. And that perhaps it would be a while before he realized that he had passed so overwhelmingly focused and captured and captivated by the beauty of God he would be in that moment. Oh, death, where is your sting? A couple of practical things and we're done. It is really important in this life that you know the promises of God. There, there are things that, that we can talk about and there, there are things that we can sing about. But there comes a point where all of these things become absolutely a piece of the way that we deal with reality in this life. It's not just, it, it's not just intellectual, but it becomes the posture for the way that we live in this life. One of the things that Jesus teaches us about God is that there is no one that can, and nothing that can snatch us from His grip. We are safe. We are safe in the hand of God. Do you believe that? You know, one of the things that God does, and I've talked about this before, but every time I think about it, I, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the desire of God for us to believe Him in such a way that it creates a trajectory of faith in every instance of life. In Ephesians chapter 1, it, it, that, that first chapter is formed like a hymn. There's three verses and a chorus, the chorus to the praise of His glory. First verse is, these are the things that God has done to the praise of His glory chorus. Second thing, this is what Christ has done. The third verse is, this is what the Spirit has done. And it's not a full-blown theology of the Holy Spirit. He'll talk more about the Holy Spirit as he goes on in that book. But one of the things that he says about the Holy Spirit in that book is that when you become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, your life changes. And that cha- the power to change is not just going to rely on you, but God is going to put a Holy Spirit 
His Holy Spirit in you. That Holy Spirit marks you as a genuine disciple of Jesus. No one belongs to the Father unless His Spirit is in him. But the second thing that Paul says is that God puts that Holy Spirit of God in you to be like earnest money. Everybody knows what earnest money is. You buy a house, you want to show how serious you are about that contract, about that agreement, about that relation, that business relationship that you're entering into, that you plunk down you know, $500, $1,000, $10,000, depending on what the, the earnest money requirement is, but you give it. And if you give that, showing in good faith that you want to follow through with that, and then all of a sudden, two days later, three days later, you go, whatever the, the time period is, you say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. What happens to the earnest money? You lose it. Makes you think twice, right? God puts his spirit inside of us like earnest money. All of the promises that God holds out to us are true. And you get there at the very end, and if God says, you know, Wednesday nights really did count. Or, you know, something. Is my mic on? Okay, I trust you. What that means, if God reneges on those promises, is that God loses His Holy Spirit. And what happens if God loses His Holy Spirit? He stops being God. That is how firmly entrenched God wants you to believe with all of your heart and in your soul the promises that He gives you. If you are a saint, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have committed all of your life to Him and He is your Father and you are His child, one day you're going to see God face to face. And like Paul would say, all of the stuff that we experience in this life is just light and momentary. When we consider what God has in store for us, that weight, that weight of glory that awaits us. The second thing, and we're done, is draw near to God. Draw near to God. You know, in any kind of a relationship, the, the more you know somebody, the, the more specifically you know them, the more deeply and significantly you know them, the more intimately you know them, the more you come to trust and to lean and to appreciate and want to spend time. And the same is true when it comes to living in a relationship with God. A person that you don't know very well, a person you may not know at all, a person that you don't know whether to trust or not to trust is not going to be much help to you in a time of crisis. But beginning today, as your minister, I want to say to everyone here, if you've been lackadaisical or if you've been a little flippant or you've not been very thoughtful about your relationship with God, it's time to change that this morning. 
It, it's time to draw near to God and to be intimate with God and to have relationship with God. Not just have your sin managed, but to have a relationship with God in which the overwhelming sense of His presence is love. And in that overwhelming sense of love, we know that even though we may not have all details and we may not have all knowledge, we know that what God does for us, motivated in love, is for our great good and our great blessing. And that love drives out fear. Willard said, and I wanted to argue with him for the past five years. But the more I think about it, the more I study what it was he was trying to say, the more I believe it to be true. He said, when you are a disciple of Jesus and you know God and God knows you, the universe becomes a perfectly safe place to live. And that's not to say that there's not the valley of the shadow of death. It's not to say that there's pain. We live, the, the world is dust, thus have we made it. But what it means is that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. We're going to sing a song right now, a song of praise. A song to praise God for all of the wonderful things that, that He has done for us and primarily right now in this moment when we think about how He in His love brought His Son to die on the cross not only for our sins to be forgiven but for there to be reconciliation with Him. And not just reconciliation but His Spirit to come in us and, and to strengthen us in that inner person, Ephesians chapter 3, in order to become the human being we were always intended to be person a human a human creature close to god and if you've never done that this morning this would be the time to do it if you've never given your life to god in christ in faith belief of all of the promises all of the all of the teaching that we read in the bible it's time to do it today in order to find yourself in that loving grasp of God. Or there might be some ways that we can pray for you or to help you or to counsel you, whatever they may be. We're going to have three shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and sing aloud. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one.